So, um, James poses the question in his epistle, in his letter. And he asks the question, where do wars and fightings come from among you? It's a question that people ask all the time. I don't know how many of you saw uh, that poor woman on the television yesterday or the day before uh, who lost her son in the shooting in America and she was screaming out saying I, I don't want your prayers I want gun control and she kept over and over and she was very very angry and you can understand why she looked at her own loss her own tragic recent loss and saw only uh, the problem with someone else the problem uh, of someone else with a gun and certainly whoever fired that gun will answer before the God of, of heaven and yet when James asks that question where do wars and fightings come from he doesn't in a sense distinguish between the national and the personal it's common to think that wars are started by them by the government by people that can't agree by, by leaders and people say well why can't they agree why can't there be peace and we get songs like John Lennon's famous song imagine there's no wars well we'll come back to that in a moment in that imagining over there you say uh-huh mm. right okay it's delayed action obviously so it's estimated that in the last 3,400 years only 268 of them have been without a major conflict and this will of course be the kind of conflict that can be recorded in history, written down. It won't include many of the tribal warfares that go on incessantly in parts of the world like South America and Africa. So it's probably unreliable. Um, I, I should think the figure is nearer nil than 268 personally, but that's what you read. 268 years of peace out of the last 3,400. 92% of recorded time fighting and wars and in the century just gone the century of the great war that we're remembering today a hundred years since the armistice November the 11th 1918 in that century 108 million dead in various wars first world war second world war Korean war and you could, Vietnam War, you could number them on and on and on. 108 million, which is getting on for twice the population of Great Britain, dead in wars. James poses that question and he answers it in a way that perhaps that, that poor lady wouldn't have expected. He points the finger at us. Remember that James is actually writing this letter to Christians and he's talking about wrong motives even in Christians and he says in verse 2 James 4 and verse 2 you lust 
and you don't have, you murder and covet and you cannot obtain, you fight a war, yet you do not have because you do not ask. He doesn't therefore link, he doesn't therefore separate rather the idea of war between war on a battlefield, all dressed up and ready, and war inside us where we just want something and we're going to have it. He doesn't distinguish. He says that ultimately the causes are the same. You want and you don't have. I've pressed it again over, it's not going to go again, it's not. And on the screen I'm showing the flags of, of, of various nations fluttering proudly. And yet, of course, nations are formed around group identity. They're formed around language. They're formed around land and boundaries, aren't they? And boundaries are often moved, leading to invasions, one land against another. In the Old Testament, there are quite a few laws about moving property boundaries. And it talks about, in effect, don't go sneaking out into the night and move the posts in your neighbor's fence so your garden gets a bit bigger. That's part of the Old Testament law. And of course, you can expand that to nations invading other nations. Sometimes it's been done in search of food, in search of a better life. Sometimes for far less reason. Hitler, I don't know if he invented this word in German, but he had a word. He called it Lebensraum. Lebensraum, which translates exactly into English as living room. Lebensraum, living room. And he didn't mean by that your lounge, your living room. He meant room for the German people to stretch a bit. Room for the German people to have a bit more land and a bit more freedom, not to be cooped up in a narrow boundary, but room to live. That's all we want, he said in the 1930s. We want a bit of living room for the German people. In other words, we want a bit of your room. We want a bit of land that you haven't got. Where do wars and fightings come from? You want what you haven't got. You murder and covet and you cannot obtain. Describes equally well, doesn't it? National wars, even just wars, and personal warfare. Certainly warfare against God. And the 20th century is littered with these wars, if littered be the right word. Here's one of the battles in the Second World War up on the screen famous battle between the Germans and the Russians. Of course, the Germans and the Russians actually started out on the, on the same side in World War II before they turned on each other. And then Hitler led his armies into Russia and in particular to uh, what was then called Stalingrad. And Grad just means ta town in Russian, Stalin city, Stalin's town. And between 1942 and 43. The Germans camped outside, bombarded Stalingrad, and the citizens refused to give up. And those were the statistics up on the board. 841,000 Germans died, 1.13 million Russians, total 1.971 million. Just under 2 million people in one battle. Now, it wasn't an overnight battle, it was a, a very long one, 
But nevertheless, two million people. The figures are staggering, aren't they? You can't take them in. You commemorate it and you think about it, but you can't take in the effect of wanting more room to live, wanting more space. And then the Soviets themselves, even as they were defending their own land, had plenty to feel guilty about. They invented something called a gulag. You may have heard of it. Simply stands for an administrative camp. They had these camps for locking up their own people. It's estimated there were 476 of them in the Soviet Union between the 1923 and 1961. 476 camps, that might maybe an underestimate, for locking up their own people, for thinking wrong things, for not agreeing with the government, as it were. And it's not really known how many people died in those camps. Records weren't really kept, as you might imagine. Nobody knows how many millions of people were carted off to Siberia, froze for years on end, and then just died. Nobody knows what wars and fightings lead to. Or another battle. Hmm, I've gone too far. I lost faith in it. I pressed again when I shouldn't have done. Go back. That's it. Cat in. They changed sides, as I said. The uh, Germans and the Russians. But before that, in 1940, when the Russians went through Poland, they took 2.2 thousand people, officers, people of leading citizenship in Poland, people who were in charge, and they took them into a forest at Katyn, and they shot them on Stalin's orders, one by one. And then, 13 months later, they changed sides. And when it was discovered after the war, the Russians maintained for years that the Germans had done it, when all the bodies were just found, obviously slaughtered in that way. And as for the remembrance that we, we have today, Flanders Fields, commemorate all these things. Flanders, of course, was an area of uh, bordering France and Belgium in the First World War. It was the area where poppies grew and those various things on the board, uh, on the screen there. Tell them as a teacher, can't you? Keep calling it a board, a whiteboard. <laughs> Tanks first used and uh, after the war, some of the fields left to themselves grew poppies. Estimates of World War I deaths vary but commonly quoted statistic, 20 million dead, 20 million wounded. This figure does not make it the conflict with the greatest loss of life. That's something to think about. It is, isn't even the war in history where most people lost their lives. You could go back to the um, 30 years war, which you probably don't know much about, in the 17th century and uh, in, in Germany and in Europe. And it's thought that over 30 million people lost their lives there and we don't even really know about it we might have heard the name and that's about it where do wars and fighting come from among you well after the war came the poppies when the firing died away in the first world war the fields grew poppies 
James's book enlarges on the Sermon on the Mount. If you read the book of James with the Sermon on the Mount in your other hand, as it were, not that that would be quite possible, but you know what I mean, bearing in mind the Sermon on the Mount, James is taking some of the themes of the Lord, some of the teachings of the Lord, and he's, he's amplifying them, he's enlarging them. So when the Lord himself in the Sermon on the Mount talks about uh, blessed are the peacemakers and so on, James takes that particular theme and he enlarges it and says, okay, well, you know, you might stand at a memorial this morning and you might pray for peace. But what is peace? Where does it come from? Who gives it? And why don't we have it? And what part do you play in the fact that we, we don't have it? Well, as I said earlier, it's easier to blame them. And yet, on account of the fall, on account of the fall in human nature, we're all, each of us from birth, signed up for war. We're seasoned fighters, we're armed combatants because we're fighting God from the moment of birth, by nature and by practice. We fight holiness, we fight truth, we fight peace, we fight for what we want. We're signed up from birth and we get in a mess and the world is in a mess and one of the versions calls it disorder in the version we read talks about confusion well certainly even where there isn't war there is confusion where people are not at peace in themselves and with one another there is disorder there is confusion but God as he sees all this is more than looking at the disorder and the confusion he's looking on it with anger God is angry about what we have made of the world where you have selfish ambition you'll find disorder says James but God gets angry when he sees these things he gets angry at every individual act of disobedience and when Jesus came to that cross he came one of the ways he described it he came drinking a cup you remember that he asked the disciples can you share in the cup that I have well what cup was he talking about well you'll know if you know the Old Testament in any degree that quite often the prophets talk about God pouring out because of what was happening on his earth and among his people God pouring out a cup of anger a cup of wrath God speaks of himself as pouring down anger in judgment on this world because of what's going on down there in the hearts and in the lives of men and women God is angry with sinners every day we read in his word and when we come to the Lord's table when we come to remember the Lord in, on the cross we need to think of him that way we need to think of him drinking up that full cup of God's anger against every wrong thought deed act unjust war killing murder slaughter shooting people one by one wanting something that we haven't got praying for something we don't ought to all of it in that cup being poured upon the Lord Jesus Christ and on the cross that's what he took every single wrong thought and deed and action it, it hardly bears thinking about it, does it what the Lord did what he took upon himself 
we can only marvel, we can only praise, but we can't imagine. What might we want? James asks that question. You, you, you ask, verse 3, James 4, verse 3, and you do not receive because you ask amiss to spend it on your pleasures, it says in this version, to spend it on what you want. Well, what, might, what sort of things might we want? Well, obviously we might want this to work, <laughs> and after that, We might want money, makes the world go round, people have said. And the scriptures say that the love of money is the root of all evil. Not money is the root of all evil, but the love of it is the root of all evil. And of course money is just a method of exchange. It's a method of getting what we want. It's a method of barter, getting stuff. So money stands for materialism. So we could easily translate this verse if we were doing it freely. The love of stuff is the root of all evil. That would be perfectly proper as an, as an idea, although it wouldn't translate the word. The love of stuff is the root of all evil. So we might want money, and if, if we do, well, we're not alone. And of course, as we switch on the telly, it's there on every hand, not just the advertising, but the loan companies. Do you want more of it? Have you not got enough? Would you like some more? We'll let you have it at some extortionate interest rate. Or the betting companies switch on a cricket game, a football game, a rugby game, doesn't matter what it is, and you're being invited to bet. Uh, and how do betting companies make their money? Well, of course, they make it on the fact that this world is disordered. They make their money on the fact that this world is confused, that there is no, there is no racing certainty in this world, except that the bookies will win in the end. Money. What other things might we want? Well, we might want something less obviously materialistic, if it will come. Do you see it before I do, Karen? Ah, oh, that's why you, it's not there yet. <laughs> okay, you might want simply somewhere to live. Nothing quite so wrong about that. And yet James is suggesting that even if you just want somewhere to live, how do you ask for it? How do you pray for it? You don't have because you ask in the wrong way. You ask amiss, as we read here. You ask not with the glory of God in front of your eyes and thoughts, but you ask with the house slap bang there thinking, I want it, I want it. And James says, if that's how you want it, that's why you haven't got it. You might want something which is which is quite okay to want, just a roof over the head. <coughs> and yet if you want it obsessively, if you want it full of self-pity that you haven't got what you want, James says you're asking in the wrong way. God is the father of all good gifts and he never turns away, the scripture says. There's no shadow of turning with him. He's not turned away and not listening unless you ask amiss. He's the God of all good. All things work together for good. You might have to wait a while. You might have to wait a long while. But he is the author of all good. And whatever he does is for your good purpose, the scripture tells us. But unless you recognize this, then you're part of this war. You're part of this constant fight against God if you don't really believe that God has your best interests in heart. When is the time when you're least likely to think about the love of God and the care of God? 
when a worry looms up, of course, when something goes wrong. The very time we should be thinking, well, if our faith is anything, then the Lord is in control. And if we really believe that, that ought to be the very time we pause for thought and prayer. Yet we know the creatures we are. And we know how, how rarely that is the case. And sometimes how we go through something and we sort of think, I prayed for that and it happened and I forgot all about it and I haven't even thanked the Lord for it. That's the kind of stuff that, that we are made of. And we all know it, don't we? We all know it. James asked these, these searching questions. What other things might we want? Well, there's so much to be had. Give me the nod, Karen. No, she's shaking her head. Thank you. Okay. So much to be had. And of course, with the internet, it's only a click away, isn't it? It's only a click away. And uh, we can start off sitting down at the computer and we can end up poorer. And we didn't even intend it. We just meant to sit down and have a look. Spending has never been easier, has it, than on the internet. Bear in mind that the Lord says, everything that you have comes from me. Everything that you need comes from me. And just think about it before we enter into these things. As Christians, we may have made our own small material wants, seen in the context of this world. We may have made them a matter of persistent prayer even. But the heavens are dumb. Because James tells us, verse 4 and verse uh, chapter 3, you ask and you do not receive because you ask amiss that you may spend it on your pleasures. And then he gets really strong in verse 4, adulterers and adulteresses. Well, of course, that's a very common way that God in the Old Testament teaches about loving ourselves, loving what we want, loving idols instead of loving God. God calls that idolatry. He calls it spiritual idolatry. He calls it adultery. So when James says that, he's only echoing what God has said many, many times in the Old Testament. Your heart is turned away from God. That's why you don't get. That's why you haven't got peace. And of course, peace from God, peace with God, is his greatest gift. And sometimes you'd be hard-pressed to realise it when you look into the lives of, uh, of ourselves and individual Christians. Sometimes we ask other people to share our thought life which might, in fact, if they could really see into it, be crowded out with our wants. Not just stuff, such as I showed up there, not just houses and money, but you want things to happen for other people. You want other people to think like this or be like that. You want other circumstances to be cleared away in the path of somebody else. You want things. That might be all well and good, but you need to love the giver, you need to have him in view. You need to begin and end and begin again with the Lord Jesus Christ who endured such a contradiction of sinners against himself, it tells us in the scripture. Part of wanting wrongly, well, the Lord took that as well. Part of our own heart state, he took that. Think about what the Lord endured and when you've thought about it and thanked him for it, can you still ask? Does it seem good? Ask away. Ask away. Well, that can seem quite severe. And James gets worse. He says in verse 4 of chapter 4, 
Whoever wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. He's talking to Christians, remember, and he says, if you're determined to have stuff without God in view, then you're just like the rest of the world. And if you're just like the end of the rest of the world, you're an enemy of God. You're an adulterer, you're an adulteress, you're coming to prayer and your heart and mind is on the world as you see it, on the world as you want it to be. And the Lord says, begin and end with me. All things are in my hand. But James doesn't stop there, fortunately. He, he takes us to the Spirit. He takes us in verse 6 to the God of grace. He gives more grace. And then he reminds us again, but God resists the proud. He gives grace to the humble. And then he closes with directing ourselves towards God through his spirit. How do we know this peace? How do we find this satisfaction in the Lord? Well, of course, through his word, through his spirit, through the indwelling spirit in the heart of the believer, the greatest gift. When the Lord Jesus himself was in the garden, we read about it in John 17, he prayed for many, many things, and it never ceases to amaze me when I look at that passage, and you look at it, that mainly he wasn't praying for himself, he was praying for us. The night before he went to Calvary, he was praying for us, and he said things like, Father, I would that they could be where I am. And what did he mean by that? He meant in union with you through the Spirit. He could be at peace before the cross. And he says, I would that they could be one as we are one. I would that they could be united in thought and purpose and desire and commitment through the Holy Spirit as we are one. And he prays in that garden for the gift, which is the gift, of course, of the Spirit. The Spirit cannot come until he has gone to that cross and died and praised his name, risen again and come down at Pentecost. The Spirit is the gift and the gift is the gift of peace. And of course, it's why the Spirit is so often depicted like that. The Spirit is depicted, I'm showing a picture of a dove. The Spirit is depicted as a dove, a dove of peace. He plucks us from this world of wanting and in giving us his spirit, he wants everything about us to be united to him. Our thoughts, our mindset, the direction of our wanting, everything to be united in him. James chapter 3 and verse 18, hopping back a bit. The fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Well, how do you make peace? Of course, you make it through the Spirit of the Lord. You make it, first of all, by being forgiven and repentant, confessing sin, living before him through his Holy Spirit. Then there is peace. There is the possibility of peace. And James says in that verse 3.18, the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. And... Whoop, one too many. Going back one, nearly done. Is it going back? Yeah. Yep. 
This is a translation of that verse, James 3.18, by J.B. Phillips. I'm going to turn around so I can see it. I don't trust it, but yes, it's fine. I do have it here. I can read it without craning my neck. It's a version of J.B. Phillips of James 3 and verse 18. The wise are peacemakers who go on quietly sowing for a harvest of righteousness in other people and themselves. The Lord, through his indwelling spirit, brings first peace, a sign of peace from God that he took all our filth, all our wrong wanting. He made peace through the blood of his cross, we read, don't we, in another place. James's message is still the same as the Lord's. Blessed are those peacemakers. They shall obtain peace. You'll get peace. And it's, it's what you call a virtuous circle. It goes round and around. That if you obtain peace from the Lord, you give peace, you get peace. Peace comes back to you. The Lord says, be as harmless as doves. Be as harmless as doves. And James describes the process like this. In James 4 verse 7 he says first of all submit to God. Verse 8 draw near. And marvel of marvels he will draw near to you. I guess if you were to sum up this couple of chapters in James in a sense that's, that's the heart of it. If you draw near to God by his spirit he will draw near to you and you won't be asking amiss. You won't have your thoughts in the wrong place. Meanwhile, says James, cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts. Verse 10. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord and he will lift you up. That verse here describes a harvest of righteousness. And the last picture there is the wheat at harvest time ready to be harvested. We want to get something from God. We want something out of our prayer life. First of all, get the Holy Spirit. Get the Lord himself. Draw near to God and he will not draw near to you. You want peace? You want to get mercy? Pray for sincerity. Pray for a singleness of heart. Pray that you won't be, as James describes it, double-minded. Pray that we'll be the sort of people who want what God wants and then it's maybe just peace that we will get well what a gift that would be what a gift that would be if the only thing that the world got this morning was peace you wouldn't need much else would you the Lord has made peace by the blood of his cross and he invites us to draw near any who don't know him draw near and those who do Submit yourselves, humble yourselves, and he draws near to us. You want peace? You want to give peace? You want to be at peace? Seek the Lord with all your heart and everything else is his and he will give it to you as your need is. What a wonderful thing it is that the Lord knows what we want better than we do. The other thing would be unthinkable, wouldn't it? But the Lord is our best friend. And he's the ruler of the very heavens and the earth. Praise his name. Praise him for Jesus this morning.
in this world of remembrance. Amen.